Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Russell Toby. And I'm Robert Diamant. And this is Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art. How are you today, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling like a bro. Oh, yeah? An art bro. (laughs) Oh, an art bro. An art bro. Um, Yeah, and I'm feeling (laughs) like my life is actually a rom-com. I've realised in researching today's guest that my life has just basically been a rom-com, but without the happy ending. Without so, the romance. <laughs> without, without, <laughs> and without the funny. It's very yeah. sad. But yeah. Um, yeah, but the joy of the situation is that even if I didn't get a happy ending, today's guest did. <laughs> it did. Sorry. Yeah. Um, in the rom-com I'm talking about, Oh, I Russell. see. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, not, I'm not doing like euphemisms already. Yeah, so today's guest uh, wrote the most amazing uh, rom-com. And in my eyes, um, I am very proud that he is joining us because to me, he is a pioneer and he is a visionary and he is somebody who has done so much for LGBT rights just by being himself. Many of us, as myself included, first discovered him because of Billy on the Street. And I didn't see it in America, but I did see it on YouTube. And I remember being really captivated by his charisma and his wit and his just um, genuine enthusiasm for creativity. And it made me think of me and you, Russ, because we're bros, aren't we? Big time. And that, luckily, is the title <laughs> of the current movie, uh, which is out in cinemas now, even in the UK. Wonderful. It did I think it came out in September in America. But we finally got it in the UK cinemas, which is awesome. And um, we are going to be exploring his... Uh, interactions and passion for art which um actually came to him through quite an unusual route it's not um necessarily something we've spoken much about before but we are going to be exploring that which is finding art through other creative mediums like film theater musicals things like that and I know we've had previous guests like Pierce Brosnan um, and we spoke about Thomas Crown Affair which is one of my personal kind of highlights where the art, art heist the art original art heist movies yeah exactly mm-hmm. and also um, Velvet Buzzsaw which had our previous guest Zowie Ashton also on it so today we are hopefully going to be educated about how art meets other industries so we would like to welcome to Talk Art one of my heroes Billy, Billy Eichner, Eichner. Hi, hey Billy. Guys, that, hi, that was such a nice introduction. Thank you. You deserve it, Billy. Where are you in the world? I am in Los Angeles, California, like the Hollywood garbage that I am. <laughs> but you weren't, you weren't raised in LA. You, you're, you're, you're a genuine New York-raised Queens boy, right? 
I am. Yeah, I'm a native New Yorker. I grew up in Queens, New York, one of the outer boroughs for those not familiar. Um, but I went to high school in Manhattan, um, not a private school, because everyone always thinks that when I say that, but it, it's what we would call now in America, a magnet school. Um, it was a very nerdy high school for math and science kids, uh, which is weird because I wasn't really great at math and science, but I somehow got into this school. So I was a real city kid. I took the subway to high school every day, back and forth, an hour and 15 minutes each <gasps> way, um, which was great. I loved it because um, it got me into the city. And I still, I'm still in New York all the time, but I technically live in L.A. Why did you make the move to LA to become Hollywood garbage or just because? It, uh, it was actually because of Billy on the street, because in the early seasons, you know, we didn't have much of a budget. It was being produced by a production company called funny or die, which you might've heard of. Mm -hmm. um, and I was always very, very hands-on in the editing of Billy on the street. It's a huge part of it. I mean, it's a huge part of anything, especially in comedy, the editing, but for that show, it was just a, such a, a significant part of putting it together. And, you know, I knew I wanted to be hands-on in the editing. I work with amazing editors. I don't actually, you know, use the editing software. I'm not on the computer, but I'm right next to them. And it was cheaper for Funny or Die to put me up in LA for three months where they already had production offices that we could use for free and have me edit there than it was to keep offices open in New York where we obviously shot the show so that I could edit there. So I started to come out for a few months at a time and then I started to get more work. I got a role on Parks and Recreation and other things started popping up and I, d I actually... I ended up really liking it. I mean, it's such a change of pace from what I'm used to. As a native New Yorker, you know, especially growing up in the 80s and the 90s, we're all taught to reflexively hate LA, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, I was taught to hate LA before <laughs> I had ever stepped foot in LA. I just knew I hated LA, right? <laughs> um, and then I started to come out here, usually for work purposes, and I was looking around like, wait a second. Have New Yorkers actually been here? Because it's really nice. <laughs> um, and so I didn't mind it. And, uh, you know, I still really love New York a lot. It's still so I was just there for a week and I went to some galleries that Russell recommended because I'm not really an art person. So I was hesitant to come on this podcast, but uh, I still love New York. It's it's my favorite place. And I, I'm very much a New Yorker. Well, before we get on to the art stuff, so Billy on the Street is this incredible show that you've fronted. I think there was eight seasons. Is that right? It has. It's a very strange trajectory. I started doing it in my live show. I had a live show in New York that I would do. And I started to develop this persona that was sort of like what Billy on the Street became, that, you know, sort of irrationally passionate about pop culture, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, That's what we love about you. <laughs> yeah. And so that persona I started to develop in a live show on stage in New York before YouTube even existed because I am old. Um, and I started doing those videos and we would project them on a screen, you know, as, as part of my live show. And then right. YouTube came along. We did videos on YouTube and then it became its own half hour series here in the states um which funny or die produced we did five seasons of half hour episodes 
but then we would take segments from the show and put them online. And that's really how people discovered it. And then after the show ended, we kept doing videos just for the internet and social media. And we did a bunch of videos with various celebrities. So mm-hmm. it kept going even after the official TV show ended. And then it had a weird second and third life because Netflix started showing the old episodes. And then on TikTok, it completely exploded, even though I don't even have my own TikTok page. Um, but fans were ripping the clips you know, from the show or from online, wherever they were finding them. And it became insanely popular on TikTok. For, I think for kids who literally weren't alive when I started doing it, uh, <laughs> which, is really, which is really weird. So um, it's had a crazy trajectory, Billy, on the street. I think it also went really international as well, because I feel like I, I remember when it started popping up on Instagram all the time. And I, I found you very captivating and used to watch all the clips. And some of them are so funny and so Thanks. brilliant. But um, uh, I, Yeah, I'd, I'd put it out there with Carpool Karaoke in yes. the way that that just internationally sort of just blew up. And it became like a totally. thing that we would see in our feeds on the daily would be yeah. whoever James was in the car with and you, whatever celebrity you were with in New York shouting at people. Totally. Yeah, no, it definitely became a sort of social media phenomenon. Facebook at the beginning also was instrumental in, you know, getting the clips out there to an audience, obviously beyond America. And I'm very grateful, you know, I mean, it was a, it's a crazy thing to do. <laughs> well, you did, the thing is, is that you did it, it's like in comparable ways, I'd say that us doing this podcast came from an absolute passion project, something we just made up, something we did, a platform for ourselves just to kind of be geeks and nerds. And Billy on the Street was something that you created as a platform for yourself to have this, you know, as you said, this irrational alter ego to let them free. And then it, it worked because it was genuine and it was fresh and it was meant. Yeah, thank you. I, yeah, I mean, I went to a Northwestern and I was a theater major there. Northwestern is a, you know, very prestigious university here uh, near Chicago with a very prestigious theater program. And, you know, we were like serious actors. Uh, and then I got to New York and started writing the live show, developed this persona, did these videos on a fluke. And for, for three years, we had Billy on the Street videos on YouTube that no one knew <laughs> were there. Just they went undiscovered. Right. And they were as funny as anything that I've ever done. But I don't know. That's just like the random nature of the Internet. And then three years later, I kept doing them. One of them went viral and another one went viral. Then Funnier Die reached out to me and, you know, it kind of took on a life from there. But I could have never in a million years predicted the popularity of it and that that and that that of all things would be my kind of entryway into a yeah. career you know you just you can you, never know you really never know you, you never don't. know you don't but you don't know who's watching at any moment or listening at any time but also your yeah. your career has been so illustrious and i was looking at your kind of imdb which i now know about because of russell um and uh, i saw <laughs> he has you... his printed out on the wall <laughs> <laughs> exactly he's with me now actually <laughs> he, he, he daily updates me on his imdb uh, yeah. credits they're, they're getting bigger by the week but um mm-hmm. you've both been in american horror story which is yeah. something that unites both of you but you have worked with so many icons i want to talk about some of them so you've worked with joan rivers rupaul um you were in the simpsons mariah carey who else beyonce 
<laughs> yes, <laughs> strangely. <laughs> strangely yes. enough, it's pretty iconic. Who who out of that lot? Actually, let's start with Joan Rivers, maybe, because that was near the beginning, wasn't it, of your career? Yeah, Joan was really incredible to me. And I'm much closer with her, or was closer with her, obviously, um, than I am with some of the other, you know, very famous people that I've come into contact with. Because she discovered me really early on before people knew who I was. She came to that live show I was doing in an off-off-Broadway theater in New York. Oh, wow. Um, this is around 2006. My first real TV job was a pilot for Bravo. And Joan Rivers had a pilot she was doing. And they wanted to do primetime version of the, the, the talk show The View, and oh, yeah. which, which at the time was Barbara Walters sitting around with four different types of women and talking about the news of the day or pop culture or whatever. So they wanted to do a funny version of it with Joan Rivers sitting around with four different types of gay men talking about news and making jokes, right? And it was called Joan Rivers Straight Talk. Ha ha ha, <laughs> LOL. So um, they, I auditioned for that and she came to see me in my live show. No one knew who I was. And she, she just really got me on every level. And they put me in that pilot. Andy Cohen was also on the panel. This was before he had his own no show. No way. Oh my God. Yeah. This was summer of 2006. And it was me and Andy and Joan and two other gay men. There was like a conservative guy and like a very young publicist and me there to make jokes. And I think Andy kind of being Andy and Joan, right? And Joan and I became really close from that and they didn't pick it up, but Joan just stayed like my biggest champion. And I mean, I could go on and on about like how supportive she was, you know, because at the time I was really struggling to get work. Um, and I was in this very frustrating position where people would come to my live show or see my videos and say, oh, you're so funny or you're this or you're that. And but it wasn't translating into work. And she was just very encouraging. Um, and she did this amazing thing where uh, she started to do the talk show circuit again in New in you know, New York and in LA, she did the tonight show and she did Jimmy Kimmel and all those shows. And she asked me to put my Billy on the street videos that I had at the time on a DVD. And she said she would drop them off with all the producers oh. at the late night shows and tell them about me. And wow. she did. She oh did. Right? Oh. And it was crazy. And then Years later, my career took off. Billy on the Street became a TV show. And I ended up doing all those shows all the time. And I remember going to do Jimmy Kimmel for the first time as a guest. And the showrunner, the you know executive producer there at the time, saying to me, you know, it's amazing. A few years ago, Joan Rivers was here and she dropped off a DVD with oh, your videos and said, you got to watch this guy. generous is that? It was, that is... It, was inc it was incredible. Now, Joan was a complicated person. Don't get me wrong. Um, <laughs> but she really was like unbelievably supportive. People used to think we were related, you know, like I was her grandson or something because that was how much she championed me to other people. So she and she was just a blast to be around. She was so fun. She was the first celebrity that agreed to do Billy on the street when it became a TV show because no one, I didn't know celebrities, you know? So she was really amazing. 
Oh, well, rest in power, Joan. That's just phenomenal. And this this was unaired, yeah. this pilot. Can we find this secretly somewhere on YouTube or is it like disappeared? I, I, I don't know. I, I think it's, I don't think it's on YouTube. I think I have a DVD of it somewhere that they sent me. Um, it wasn't very good, unfortunately. You know, it's just one of those things that didn't come together. But it's kind of interesting because Joan was in a bit of a career, you know, slump at the time. And then then this pilot didn't get picked up. And then then her career sort of took off again. She had this like late career resurgence about a year or two after this, where that documentary about her life, which is incredible. If you yeah, haven't seen it, it I yes. highly recommend it. That came out and I think it gave people a newfound respect for her. And then she ended up sort of ironically considering all the Trump stuff, like winning Celebrity Apprentice here. And she was very funny on that show. This is before Trump was a political figure. Um, and so she had this resurgence afterwards. Um, but at the time, people were, were a little iffy on her. And um, but, uh, you know, it was it was a so I mean, it was so much fun for me. You know, and there were many incredible moments with her. Oh, I'd love to oh, see it. Well, let's get on to the art side of your life then. So you've been mm-hmm. quoted as saying, you said earlier on you don't know much about art, but you've been quoted as saying, the only art that speaks to me is fan art. Now... <laughs> <laughs> I was joking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't, or I don't, was he? I don't believe that because, yeah, because yeah. as, as Rob said, I, I, you said I did ask you to come on this and your first impression was... Um, I don't know much about art. I wouldn't know what to talk about. But then yeah. you said to me, but the art that I've learned about is through musical theater. You said, I know about this Kandinsky uh, mm-hmm. through uh, a play uh, that right. I saw. You knew about a George Surat painting through Sunday in the Park with George, which is a Sondheim musical. And it suddenly right. went ding, ding, ding. That is an incredible route to discover art through the theater and through storytelling in another medium. Mm-hmm. Well, let me be clear. You know, okay. I'm not a total idiot. I mean, you know, I, I mean, one one of the uh, one of the amazing things about growing up in New York City, and people always say to me, "Wow, that's so weird that you grew up in New York City. How was that? Was it strange?" Obviously, it's all I knew. But one of the incredible things, and luckily, I had you know parents who liked to take me, you know, from Queens into Manhattan and do cultural things. And when we were in school. They took us into the city to go all to, to all of these museums and things. So from a very young age, you're exposed to the Met and to the Museum of Natural History and to MoMA. And you might not grasp everything that you're seeing, but you know there's a world of art out there, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like I had no exposure to it. I probably had way more exposure than most kids because of where I grew up. And also this mm-hmm. is before the internet existed. So, you know, we didn't have that. Uh, as as a tool to expose you to things. So I did go to a ton of museums as a kid, and these are some of the greatest, you know, museums in the world. I was never, it never spoke to me the same way that theater did or that movies did. Um, but I was exposed to it, you know, so uh, there's that. I mean, there was always, you know, I always liked things that were more like three-dimensional, Um you know, I liked uh, collages. What are those? Uh, mobiles. Mobile mobiles. Yes. Yeah. Oh, the Calder. The Calder mobiles. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Calder. So I I remember that you always, as kids, they would always take you to see the Calder m- mobiles, right? Like um, when and I was kid a friendly kid. in some ways. You know, as a kid, that would be really you'd get it in this kinetic kind it, of energy going round. Exactly. And- like 
even even today though i like things that are more three-dimensional there's kind of a uh and it's part of the reason i ended up liking kandinsky beyond just hearing about him in a play is because there's something like whimsical about it Mm. right it's like controlled whimsy which is what they talk about in the play six degrees of separation anyway i'm getting ahead of myself no Uh, no well this this play so did you see this when it was the movie or did you see it on stage and it you suddenly went well who's this kandinsky then I saw Six Degrees of Separation. I actually did not. My parents took me to see a ton of theater. I was really, really lucky. And we weren't rich people, but they loved theater too. So we kind of bonded over going to see plays. But for some reason, we never saw Six Degrees of Separation, which was a big hit at Lincoln Center Mm. with Stocker Channing, I think in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm -hmm. But we skipped that one. I don't know why. Maybe they thought it was too adult or something. But they took me to see a ton of gay shit. I saw things that I shouldn't have seen as an eight-year-old. <laughs> or, or maybe it's good that I saw them. Yeah. Um, but 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 we, we I don't know. We didn't see that one. But I was they played local commercials for it on local TV in New York. Like on a loop, they play commercials for Six Degrees of Separation, and it's based on a true story, which I knew about the true story. Anyway, then it they turned it into a movie with Stocker Channing and Donald Sutherland and Ian McKellen. And it's actually Will Smith's first film that he made after The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And there's a famous story, which has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but it's interesting. And he's spoken about it, uh, where he's playing a, 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 a gay man, a gay or bisexual, I forget exactly how he identifies uh, in the film, but he's playing a, a gay man, I believe, and there was a scene in the play where he makes out with another man on stage, right? And I think they're even naked together. Um, and when they turned it into a film, and this is bizarre on a number of levels looking at it now, he said that he said yes to the movie, but only on the condition that he wouldn't be seen kissing another man on camera because Bill Cosby had warned him that if that if he was on camera kissing another man, he wouldn't have a film career. Wow. Um, and so, and so they shot it in a way where you can tell he's kissing the guy, but it's from behind. So you don't actually see anything happening. By the way, I'm pretty sure Will Smith has been asked about this more recently and, and has said that if he wasn't willing to kiss a man on camera, he shouldn't have taken the role. Mm. Um, anyway, uh, he's very, very good. In Six Degrees of Separation. Everyone in it is spectacular. And I've always loved this movie. Um, It's about the, it's about many things. It, 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 you know, touches upon race a lot. It touches upon the class divide in New York City. Um, And in the film, Stockard Channing's husband, played by Donald Sutherland, is an art dealer, right? And he's trying to sell this Kandinsky uh, for $2 million, right? Um, and they have it. They keep showing the Kandinsky and it's a dub- it's a two-sided Kandinsky, right? And Stocker Channing's character keeps like flipping it around and saying, you know, uh, uh, chaos control, chaos control. She keeps saying that, right? $2 million, $2 million. She keeps repeating it. Um, anyway, as a kid, you know, I, I was a middle-class kid from Queens who really wanted to be a rich person in Manhattan, right? 
So I really, <laughs> I really romanticized the life that they're leading, even though it's about how they're all secretly terribly unhappy, you know? <laughs> um, but that's how I was introduced to Kandinsky. I didn't know who Kandinsky was and I didn't follow, you know, that, that art world as much as a kid. Um, and so I would always tell anyone when they asked me, what painter do you like? I would say, oh, Kandinsky. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but I knew about it from this film slash play. Um, and, but as it turned out, I did really end up loving Kandinsky. Right. Um, it wasn't just the play, you know, um, and I saw the Kandinsky show at the Guggenheim last fall mm, mm. Um, and I loved it. Um, and so I actually I actually do really lo love him. And I do think it's strangely because um, it is this sort of uh, chaos control, chaos control. Like it's a combination. His work is is like controlled whimsy. You know, it's very whimsical and colorful in a certain way, but it's also very structured. Is that you? Um, yes, because I was thinking about this. You know, you, I mean, I'm not comparing myself to Kandinsky, but just in terms, <laughs> of the, in terms of the qualities of his work that speak to me, I think a lot of what I do, whether it's Billy on the Street, even Bros has whimsical moments right yeah. but it's all like i was talking about it's the editing is just as important as the chaotic part of it that we shoot on the street so it's chaos edited down to something that may look raw and very freewheeling to you because we're editing it to to, to maintain that that vibe that aesthetic but mm. it's all very it's all done uh you know meticulously to mm. capture that chaos, but it's edited down and it's framed in a certain way, right? Because if it was purely wild, you know, and you were just looking at raw footage of Billy on the street, you wouldn't like it, right? Um, it needs to be contained in some way. Um, and there are whimsical touches and bros too, but it's very contained within what I think is a pretty grounded story. Right. But it's a but bros like most romantic comedies is a mix of reality and fantasy. Right. It's grounded, but it's also wishful thinking. That's all romantic comedies. That's every Nora Ephron movie. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so and I think there is something to that quality of chaos and control yes. that I that I'm drawn to. Well, I think totally. you are you are quite chaotic in the performances, what you do, Billy on the Street, especially. But then the control mm -hmm. comes from the edit. So you know you can be as chaotic as you want. You're wild then. But when you get back mm -hmm. into that dark room, you can, you know, contain it all and make it yeah. how you want it to be. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's chaos, but there's a point to it, right? Like the best of Billy on the Street, sometimes it's just silly and fun. But the best of what we did had a real satirical uh, level to it, right? Like we were satirized. The whole persona was built to satirize my own obsession with the entertainment industry from a young kid, right? Mm -hmm. It's, mm -hmm. it's satirizing, it's poking fun at it and also celebrating it, you know, this kind of irrational interest in entertainment, you know? Um, and so there's, it is grounded in that idea, even though it feels very raw and free, you know, a lot of thought went into it. 
You know, mm-hmm. yes, it's improvised once I get on the street, but the questions I'm asking people, again, the way it's edited down, a lot of thought goes into it. Um, I did a series here called Difficult People on Hulu, which also had some really absurdist, whimsical touches, but was really grounded in the reality of being, you know, a struggling actor, writer in New York, but with whimsical touches, right? And absurdist touches. Like I've always liked whatever that genre is, I've always loved it. It's Annie Hall, you know, it's Woody Allen and and Diane Keaton and Annie Hall. On one level, it's a very grounded, sad, real feeling love story between two ultimately mismatched people, but there are all these absurdist, whimsical moments in it, right? I I saw uh, one of the interviews that you did on your kind of press tour. I think it was like some sort of global tour you did for many months promoting the movie. (laughs) And one one, uh, of the British interviewers said to you, um, you know, when you were doing Billy on the Street, would you ever have looked forward and realised that you might one day be the leading man in a and co-writing, you know, a major blockbuster movie, which is kind of what previously you would have been a fan of, even though that Mm. genre of bros is in many ways groundbreaking and a new uh, genre in many ways. But what, what was that like? Like to suddenly, you know, have this opportunity to, to, to make a motion picture and also with Judd Apatow because I feel like what you're talking about that genre is very like specific to him as well because I know that he was involved I know he didn't write it but he's very much come from that really he's fascinating... the zeitgeist for that isn't he yeah ways. and he kind of ch- champions mm-hmm. such fascinating people not just yourself but also our mutual friend Lena Dunham Russ and I are friends with her and and yeah. you know if you think of his, the support he gave her at a very early stage I feel like he spots kind of um, quite unique characters and really gives them agency and helps them to, to grow. He does. And I, I really admire that about him. I, I think Judd obviously cut his teeth and, and had a lot of success telling stories that very much in the earlier part of his career centered on his own existence, you know, as a straight yeah. man, you know, uh, looking for love and, you know, sort of navigating the world of sex and dating and relationships with with straight women. Um, and I I think he he did a really admirable thing, which is to take whatever capital he built from that and all the massive success he had, and then allowing other people that were not sort of, you know, Judd Apatow prototypes to take center stage and tell their version of that story. Lena Dunham is a perfect example. He did it with Amy Schumer. He produced Bridesmaids, which at the time you know, it wasn't that long ago, but there were legitimate debates when that movie came out about whether you could have a major comedy starring only women, right? right there were, yeah. I mean, it's bizarre to think about now, but it wasn't yeah. that long ago. I remember quote unquote legitimate debates happening on Twitter about whether women were funny enough to carry a movie. I mean, I know it sounds insane, but these were going on, these types of conversations not that long ago. And then he did it again, you know, he did it with Kumail Nanjiani with The Big Sick. Um, and then he did it again with me and bros. And I'm really grateful for that opportunity. And and he also understands his place in that, especially with a story about gay men, which he really is. He's very much <laughs> not a gay man. Um, he doesn't live in our world and he doesn't claim to. So he guides you along you know, as did Nick Stoller, who I wrote it with and who directed the movie, you yes, know, they're, yes. they're straight men living pretty, what we would call heteronormative lives. <laughs> um, but they are very aware of that. 
Um, and they always encouraged me to tell the most honest story possible, as long as it was funny, you know, and you do want it to be relatable. I mean, you want it, you want people, no matter what their sexual orientation is, to be able to to feel what's happening in the movie and to be entertained by it, right? The way that we've been entertained by rom-coms about straight people for decades. Sure. Um, but but they really let me guide the movie creatively because I'm writing about my life and my world. Um, and they they let you do that without getting in the way. And I appreciate that too. But I, I, I really love the fact that film exists now. Do you know what I mean? Like if you, even if you think about that comment about Will Smith, you know, the, 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 the film industry that he was entering at that point, yeah. you know, in that space of 25 years or whatever it might have been, it's mm -hmm. like, I just love that bros exists and that the lead actors are gay. You know what I mean? Like everybody's you're, you're, queer you're, in that You're film. playing even, gay, even but you are actually gay. Like mm -hmm. that's really important too. But also what Billy did was that everybody who was playing straight were queer. So he was yeah. subverting Hollywood's yeah. traditions yeah, yeah, yeah. with casting, which is it's incredibly groundbreaking beyond. Yeah. I mean, thank you. Uh, yeah, it was challenging. You know, the whole thing's challenging. It's, yeah. it was just, there, there isn't much of a blueprint for bros you know um you yes, are the blueprint of course, <laughs> of course of and when i say that people get mad when i say that but what about decades of queer indie films yes of course like yeah. i grew up on those movies like i'm older than all of you motherfuckers and like i saw <laughs> i saw those movies in the movie theater okay i watched i like i said i had very weirdly liberal supportive parents in new york city growing up in the 80s right and i watched my beautiful laundrette with my father that i rented to watch on v uh, on a vcr you know and i watched <laughs> my own private idaho and my parents took me to see truth or dare in the movie theater the weekend it opened you know like no one needs to tell me about the history of indie queer films because yeah, I yeah, saw yeah. them all. Um, but it's just a different bros, you know, was released in 3000 movie theaters in North America, you know, the way that a Judd Apatow movie would normally get released, exactly. you know, and, and, and that is very new, right. So for a movie that queer with all of these queer actors, you know, that part of the experience was very new and there isn't much of a blueprint for that and so it was all very challenging and wonderful and i've gotten so many messages not exclusively from queer men but mostly from queer men all over the world you know talking about how much the movie meant to them in ways that surprise me you know and make mm. me very emotional because mm. you know gay guys can be really snarky um it's just kind of part of our our makeup for whatever reason mm -hmm. uh there are reasons for that but i won't go into that <laughs> did your family know that you were gay growing up because truthful dare is the madonna movie and is it true that you had a madonna themed yeah. bar mitzvah <laughs> this has been well i mean i didn't come out to my parents until i was in college i think i was 20 but did they know i mean how could you not know when did you're you have like, a poster you know, of john bon jovi on your wall as well i did i had a poster of madonna which may have thrown them because she was like sort of topless in it. But I was like, come on, that's not why I have the poster of Madonna <laughs> up on my wall. And then I, I was obsessed with John Bon Jovi and Bon Jovi as a kid. Um, and I had a poster of John Bon Jovi in on my wall too. My cat's name was Jovi. Um, I really love Bon Jovi. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yeah, yeah. Rob had the sex book when he was at senior school and he took it around the school with him and he also convinced a lot of his other student friends that he was the son of Madonna. I did. I, I said <laughs> oh I was called Troy Boy. When I was about 12 years old, um, I'd already seen he had the sex as book. well. I had the sex book. I did too. I did too. And I, I told everyone I was called Troy Boy. And for, it was I didn't actually say I was Madonna's son. I said I was called Troy Boy and that that's what everyone had to call me. And then some kid in my class told everyone that I was Madonna's son and they believed me. And it went on for about three weeks where people kept <laughs> oh walking my up God. to me. And you're walking and around with your like, mum's book with her like completely naked. I had the sex book too. My... My mom, I was such a Madonna fan. My mom went and stood online the day the sex book came out and bought it for me. For her son, um, for her 12-year-old son. I, how old was I? Yeah, I was like 13. Yeah. What year were you born? I'm 1980, so. Oh, I'm 1978. Exactly, so yeah. I've, so it's similar, yeah. yeah. So you were probably like 13, 14. I was probably yeah. like 12. <laughs> 12 with this. It's so I graphic. I don't think I got the book from my mum, though. I can't even remember where I got it from. You said your oh, dad I got, got it for you. Oh, no, I think my brother. Oh, maybe my dad got it for me or my brother. I can't remember. I think my brother might Actually, the sex book is actually probably the first art book I ever had. Yeah. Now that I think about and it. And it's yeah. just been reissued in, in Art Basel, Miami. Yeah, it's been I saw that. Yeah, yeah, the deep under on, yeah. yeah. Who's the, who was the photographer of his, his name? Stephen Mizell. Um, Stephen Mizell, yeah. And yeah, it, yeah. I mean, yeah. some of it is so beautiful. So those prints look well. beautiful. Like some of them no, I'd actually are. want. They're stunning. Yeah. And Naomi Campbell's in the book and like loads of her friends and like kind of cool so, people. So's Vanilla Ice. And so's Vanilla uh, I think Ice. She always liked us super. I mean, Vanilla Ice was hot. He was like mm. a yeah. very good looking guy. Oh, like, yeah, but also, John Bon Jovi was too. I meant to say that a minute ago. John Bon Jovi well, yeah. had a point, a point where he was so hot. I remember that you, too. Of like, course, he was so yeah. hot, John Bon Jovi. <laughs> so yeah. hot. No, but in the 80s, I don't think I wasn't thinking about John Bon Jovi, but I remember when it may be like late 90s or mid 90s, he was so mm-hmm. hot. Anyway, sorry, good looking irrelevant. Man. Very good we looking. Love right. you, John. I want to yeah. get back to. Um, just a six degrees separation. So for people listening, if you go on YouTube and you type six degrees of separation Kandinsky, there is a scene that uh, contains Don Sutherland and Stockard Channing and a very um, charming Ian McKellen who looks incredible. And Will Smith comes in and they see this Kandinsky painting, which is double-sided. But the reality is that there is no double-sided Kandinsky painting that exists. They are two paintings that exist in the world. One of them is called Black Lines from 1913, and the other one's called Several Circles from 1928, and they are both in the Guggenheim collection. So that is an amazing thing that you've introduced our listeners to now, and, and myself and Robert. But then the other one I wanted to talk about was Sondheim. So Sondheim's uh, a big deal for you, and you, you two both 
share a favorite swear word, a favorite curse word I read online. Uh-huh. Oh, fuck. Right? Yeah. So I yeah. <laughs> sometimes love the word. It's fuck a popular so. one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> you meant, I thought no, you no. meant me, Russ. I was no, like, no, hang no. on, there's quite a few. I like lots of swear words. How am I going to pick? Nasty. Okay. Um, so Stephen's Sondheim musical, which is uh, Sunday in the Park with George. So did you see this as a stage show and then discover George Surat, the artist? I didn't see it on Broadway, the original. I was a little too young. I think Sunday in the Park with George premiered on Broadway in 1984. I was six years old. I wasn't going (laughs) to Broadway shows just yet. But I remember seeing it on the Tony Awards and seeing ads for it. And then uh, PBS, the public broadcasting station here, um, they recorded the original Broadway production and they showed it on TV. And I think it's still on YouTube. Right. And I highly recommend it. It's with Mandy Patinkin and Bernadette Peters. If you like musical theater or like elevated, smart musical theater, it doesn't get better than than that. Um, And so that's how I discovered it on TV. And then, you know, I discovered songs from the show by buying CDs and and all that, you know, type of thing. And then as I got older, they revived the show. I saw it on Broadway. They uh, have revived it a few times on Broadway. They did it. A couple of years ago, they did it again with Jake Gyllenhaal, mm-hmm. um, and it's I like saw a benefit that too. one, wasn't it? Like a few nights. Yeah, but y- yes, but then they brought it to Broadway for a longer run. Oh, wow. um, it was him and Annalie Ashford, actually, and uh, they were both fantastic. I mean, it's just, especially if you do anything creative with your life or try to, it's just. I don't think there's a better piece of art written about what it's like to be an artist. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just brilliant. I can't do it justice right now. But um, James Lapine, the original uh, director of the original production, and he also, I believe, wrote the book um, for With it. Sondheim. Yeah. With Sondheim. He put out a book of his own a couple of years ago, uh, which I just bought and I'm in the middle of reading about the making of Sunday in the Park with George, starting from the very early days of him and Sondheim meeting and figuring out they wanted to do a musical together, but he wasn't sure about what. And his first visit to the Art Institute of Chicago, where he saw the painting and 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 he does all these interviews. He did a lot of interviews with Sondheim before Sondheim died about it and with all the original artists and designers who worked on it, all the original actors. It's incredible. Wow. Um, and uh, he kept everything. He has like photos of like notes and sometimes like, you know, scribbling ideas and, you know, so cool. it, it's incredible. Um, and so I'm reading that now because I've always loved the musical so much. So to get, it's rare that you get to go so in depth about a musical, you know, uh, the way this book allows you to do, which is pretty awesome. Well, Sondheim was a very big uh, letter writer. There's a whole thing, feed, on Instagram you can follow. Yeah. I, I have to look it up in a second, but it's basically all the letters that Sondheim has ever... I think it's called Sondheim Letters. Is it? Yeah. yeah. It's. I yeah. mean, I follow that. It's so nice. Like Every other day when I come up and he, he's just... He's a whimsy guy, the way that he writes about the world, the way he responds to people and connects mm-hmm. to an audience that are you know wanting more information from him and his attentions. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. But yeah, so that... that uh, musical is about George Surat and about him creating the canvas titled Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grad Jate, I think is how you say it, uh, which is amazing. But it got me thinking again about other shows that have starred, you know, artists that have been about artists. Mm-hmm. There's there's a show called Red, which was about Mark Rothko, which is a John Logan mm-hmm. 
uh, play, which is a study of him making this series of paintings that were for the uh, the Seagram murals, which were at the Four Seasons Hotel. And he, this was a series of paintings, and it was his first commercial venture. He didn't believe in commercialization of art. He just believed in making it. But it's about him making this uh, suite of paintings that I think were eventually um, turned down by the hotel. They didn't want them. And he, he said he made them that he hoped to ruin the appetite of whatever son of a bitch, whoever eats in that room was why he made them. So I think eventually they got back to the hotel and they turned it down, but this was an incredible play. Alfred Molina played uh, Rothko and then uh, Eddie Redmayne was playing his assistant. So that was phenomenal. And then we've also got art, which hasn't been on, it hasn't been revived for ages, but Yasmina Razor. I don't know if you ever saw saw that. that. I did, but it was so long ago. Um, right it needs to come back i think you should be in that that for me feels like i would love to do that with you and i've always thought about that play because i feel like wow it would be so brilliant to bring back you know for me personally because i'm obsessive art and it's about this these Mm -hmm. three friends and one of them purchases a a pure white canvas and then brings it back and it's everyone's Mm -hmm. opinion like what the hell is this shit? How much money did you spend on that? What does it make you feel? And it's yeah. this whole kind of discourse on the conversations and, and the words that we use to talk about art. And, yeah. and then it, it yeah, opens yeah. up wider themes about you know, love and honesty and trust and authenticity. And it's a, an incredible play and it's been translated. I have to reread it. Yes. Yeah. Let's I, do it. I, 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 I was just talking to my theater agent about finding a play to do in New York and I couldn't figure it out. <laughs> so you might've solved that problem. But um, I I saw it on Broadway. I remember, I think it was Victor Garber and, Alan, yes. Al- and Alan Alda maybe, I, I think. It was a huge hit. Yeah. I mean, art was a huge hit. I mean, it's a rare play on Broadway that made a lot of money. Um, and I'm guessing it won the Tony for best play, although I can't quite remember. And yeah. I remember I saw it, but I, I can't really, and I remember being very entertained by it. It's very entertaining. It is. Um, but and, I and don't really remember it. Yeah. I think, I think what people would have, was assuming that they were going to go as an audience and come away going like, ha ha ha, isn't art shit. Ha ha ha. Aren't we, aren't we having the wall thrown over our eyes? But it became really poignant and emotional and people really connected to this pure white canvas and here originally it was ralph fines ken stott and tom courtney that did it yeah, i was on gonna the west say because they did it in the west end i saw it in the west end yeah that's all it. coming back to me now yeah, yeah oh you yeah, saw yeah. it you did see yes it. I i've saw, never I think seen I saw, it I, I i saw that version of it right. what year was that it's a long time ago though it was like 1964 i think oh, it was fuck <laughs> off, <Russell. laughs> no, i know it must have been in the 90 early 90s it, it was like yeah. mid mid 90s i think yeah yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. Was really it was a big hit on Broadway. It was a big hit on Broadway. Yeah. Oh yeah, my yeah. God, it's going to be a big hit again. We're going to bring it back. feel it. Then I'm one... going to buy all the tickets. <laughs> there was... It's just going to be me <laughs> sat in the audience. <laughs> oh God, awful. <laughs> then there's one, there's, there's, there's hundreds, critter. because I did like a, a Google deep dive on this. And there's another book called Vincent mm. in Brixton, which is a play by Nicholas oh, Wright, yes. which at, at 16 years old, Vincent came to Brixton because he was working with his father and his uncle in the art industry uh, in the art art dealing industry. And then there was a, a department, uh, it's called Goopel & Co. And there was a department that was in London. So he moved to London, to Brixton, to South London for two years. And I think there's a plaque somewhere where he lived. And there's a whole play about that. So there's there's been lots and lots of shows that have centered uh, artist movements, artists 
you know, narratives as as the main protagonists. I, know, I wonder if those films as well, because they had like that Turner film, didn't they, a few years ago? It did. And then the there's Mike a film, film about Pollock, and then Bowie played Warhol that's in a right. movie. That's right. And then there's obviously the Downtown '81, but that's actually, I think that was actually more a, docky style, wasn't more it? More docky style thing. Yeah. I'm not sure if there was a story. Yeah, I'm surprised really. there hasn't been a Warhol doc, um, musical. Musical or something? Do yeah. I mean it would make? There's a, a play right now oh, about oh. War, Warhol and, and Basquiat. Um, oh, that's right. They came from the it, Young Vic. It just started in New York. Yes. I haven't seen it, but I think they're in previews right now or something. Yes. And I loved the Andy Warhol Diaries. I thought that oh was my fantastic. God. Wasn't it incredible? Incredible. Incredible. Yeah, yeah it I was mean, like crack. I felt like crack watching it, every episode. It was. I know. I could have watched... That, to me, was like Lord of the Rings. I mean, I could have watched it for like 12 hours at a time. I'm with you um, there. I'm with but, you there. Uh, it was and that so was Ryan, Ryan Murphy, Murphy wasn't that it? Was yeah, Ryan, Murphy, Ryan did yeah. that, yeah. Yeah. Five years that took to make. And he oh, said it was it was, was, it was really like beautifully exquisite. done. It was so moving. And so many things that, that as much as we've all heard about Warhol, and when I started watching it, I was like, all right, more about Andy Warhol. Like, we get it. Campbell Soup Cans, we know, the factory. But I was so wrong. And there was so much that we were never told. And also hearing about, you think Andy Warhol, he was so queer and whether he was out or not, even it almost didn't matter because it was so overt. It was so obvious in his aesthetic, you know, and yet his own internal struggles about that and wanting to be mainstream, even though he was so downtown and subversive, it was really fascinating. It was. Yeah, yeah totally. Totally. So when I asked you to come on as well, um, you said in the intro that I gave you some prompts to go and see some exhibitions. Uh, I recommended <laughs> yes. a few to you. And, and I went. That, and you went. I love that about you. I absolutely love that about you. So what You're the first you, person yeah. that's ever done what we're <laughs> ever listened to, to me. Yeah. <laughs> what did you, maybe, this, maybe this play will actually happen. <laughs> what, did you, what did you see? What did you respond to? Can you remember what, what I was recommending was good to go I, with? I went to I went to the MoMA and I saw uh, Wolfgang Tillman. Yeah. Is that it? Tillman's, yeah. Um, Tillman's. Tillman's. Tillman's, yeah. Uh, which I which I enjoyed. Um, uh, you know, it covered a lot of ground that I grew up with. So, mm. you know, it's very, you know, the queer 1990s, you know, experience. Not all of it, but a lot of it was about that. And it was, you mm. know, Pride, the 1992 Pride Parade and the Love Parade and a lot about the AIDS epidemic and, you know, the in the politics around it and all that stuff is very fascinating to me but i but it's stuff that i've i've read about and seen a lot of you know films and read a lot of books about already so i i enjoyed it um it wasn't like revelatory to me only because of the very few things in life that i know anything about that era is probably one of them right, right. and and i and i grew up with it uh and mm -hmm. so so that makes sense um but there was a uh, a Barbara Kruger installation there that I that I really loved. Um, I don't remember the name of it, um, but again, it was it's very you know it's almost theatrical her work, mm. right? Mm. And it's very immersive. You know, it almost felt like you were on the set of a play, like it could have been the background yeah, of yeah. a play. You know, and that always speaks to me. And I'm a writer, and it was all words. You know, it was all just like very big letters and words, you know, going some, from like in the floor to the ceiling of the MoMA. So 
very, very much like larger than life and very theatrical and very sort of word focused, which is, I'm a writer. I'm a very like verbal person. So do you think you find yourself attracted to artists that use text then like, um, Jenny Holzer, for example, is someone similar, like protect yeah, me from um, what I want. And yeah, or Ed Ruscha. Yeah, Ed Ruscha and Glenn Ligon. I, pr- I probably, I don't know any of those people because again, I'm, I, I'm an idiot when it comes to art, uh, fine art, but um, I, I probably would be. Yes. I mean, again, I'm a very verbal person. Um, and so I guess I'm drawn to what I myself like and who I am in a way. Um, mm-hmm. though I try to challenge myself with other things. Um, but ultimately, you know, you are who you are. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Um, was it nice being like, in the MoMA? Did it feel busy in there or? It was, it was, you know, leading up to Christmas week. So New York is pretty, is, is very, is buzzing. Um, and it was, and I'm so glad that I asked you for recommendations because, it's, it was interesting. And then I went to some of the galleries in Chelsea. And, you know, this is amazing because I grew up in New York City, you know, and I'm like a real city kid. But that that fine art world, that world of galleries, I know it's there. I probably walked by a million times. But yeah. again, I was never part of it. I was never that drawn to it for some reason. So I spent a very rainy afternoon in New York City, you know, walking in and out of those galleries in Chelsea. And some of it speaks to you more than other things, but it was lovely. You know, it was very zen. Um, And it's cool to find a new thing to do in New York when I've been there my entire life. Um, So and it's like a window. I'm, You know, I'm it. I'm an artist of sorts, you know, I, I obviously like love the performing arts and I do it professionally. So it's weird because there, there is this sort of loose connection between the two worlds and that they're all very creative, but they're also very separate. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I, I saw so much theater in New York when I was there too last week, but theater, which is like the thing I love I don't do it professionally, but it's the thing I love most and have. We will be doing it professionally. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's right. We're mounting art, yes. Um, but it's the thing that I love most. But then you go to these galleries and I was like, oh, this is a whole new level of pretentiousness, which I could really get into. I mean, the theater world almost seems so pedestrian and accessible by uh, in comparison. I, I can um, see this for you, Billy. You're going to be like a collector of sculpture because you, you like you, you really have a calendar like in a few 3D years. 3D yeah. artworks. I can imagine that you're going to have like a sculpture park for Billy. I, like, sculpture, <laughs> sculpture park. park. And you can wear like you can wear like, you know, fancy outfits, bright colors flowing. But it was no, it was fantastic. And I'm so glad I, uh, I did that. Um, I think the thing with art is why you're you see a kind of connection is the fact that it is storytelling. It's just a different medium. And it's a medium that mm-hmm. we're not brought up with. We're brought up with film and music and books, and we have the ability to critique them and understand them and compare them. But when you're not shown mm-hmm. art, you have no ability to critique it. So it doesn't belong to you, but all it is is storytelling in a different way. Art is made because people haven't got the words enough to speak. So art speaks for them. And I actually shouldn't say that in certain ways theater seems more accessible, but really theater is so expensive and these yeah. galleries and museums are free to very, you know, yeah, to yeah, free yeah. Or, or at least, you know, not, not nearly as expensive as a theater ticket and you can spend all day in there. So 
it's interesting because the image that's been cultivated around it, it almost feels like there's a barrier, like it's not for everyone or that you do need to be a very wealthy person. But that's actually not true. But it's weird because the optics of it don't feel as accessible as it actually is. Even yeah, to yeah. me, because yeah, yeah. I grew up in New York, you know, Why we access to these things. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that it's kind of I designed find, in that way? I don't know. Maybe the people who actually buy art, who could afford it, maybe they like that part of the culture because there's an elitism to it. That, yeah, and there's that, a value system that gets attributed yeah. to that as well. Like out of something being special, yes, but there's it can al- then be va- very, very valuable. But there's I always guess. been museums. And there's always been public art. Yeah, and it's always true. been said yeah. it's for us and they make it free and they promote it and they want everybody of every creed to go in there. So mm-hmm. why does it still feel inaccessible to so many or not welcoming? Fine art needs a better publicist. Well, I, I mean, feel like we've been, <laughs> <laughs> we've been trying. We've been trying. Yes. Now. Yes. <laughs> um, but, and, and also this, you know, art requires the viewer, I think, that type of art to do a little more work. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't read. I mean, yes, you could sort of lazily walk around a gallery and that's actually a very pleasant thing to do but to really try to understand what the artist is going for what the artist is about whatever part of the human condition that he's trying to capture you've got to stand there and you've got to take it in and you've got to it requires some work you know some mental work of your own it's not like a movie or even a play which is being acted out at you Right. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. It, and you can it, let it wash it, over you or something. Yes. Like exactly. From your seat. Yeah. 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 You exactly. know, actually, one of the really nice things I think about New York that's quite special is you can go with your friends and just go and see five or six shows all all in one street or whatever or in one district. Like Russell and I have done it a lot, and often like I leave completely interested in what I've just seen but then occasionally you get that one show that strikes a chord with you and it's a bit like when you go and see five movies you might enjoy three of them but two of them might really change your life or one of them might you know really speak to you and I think that's why it's a really good thing to get into a habit of doing with your friends it's like maybe once a month or once every three months you know you go on an art thing because you might discover something that takes you to somewhere you never thought you might go Oh, yeah, absolutely. No, it made, even though not everything I saw spoke to me necessarily, some of it did, it made me want to do it more. Yes. You know, like it's a, it's a, (laughs) you've accomplished what you wanted to um, (laughs) here at Talk Art. Um, But uh, it it did. And and like I said, it's kind of like a cool new world to enter into. Yeah, the whole new opportunity to be pretentious, which we love. Yes, um, exactly. The, the the Barbara Kruger work, which is running until early January 2023 at MoMA, mm-hmm. is called Thinking of You, which is then crossed out. I mean me, crossed out. I mean, I mean you. Yes, yes. Yeah, yes. and then the word you is repeated quite a few times, but there's an amazing line in it that says you are seeing and being seen, which I thought kind of speaks to you know, all kinds of creativity, voyeurism. Like theater and yeah, 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 voyeurism. Yeah. And, I don't know. It's very much mm-hmm. about art, I guess. I love it. Well, before we get on to I our final questions, well. I just want to talk about one episode of Billy on the Street, which I did find, which maybe this is one of the ones that <laughs> has disappeared and needs to be rediscovered in 2014, where it's called, just like Tyler Perry, I Hate Art. 
and you are going through and asking people their facts, uh, Tyler Perry facts, and if they get it right, you destroy a piece of art. We have a Mondrian that's torn up, a Warhol that's smashed over a <laughs> over a, uh, a water event thing. There's a we Ming vase you drop last. on the floor. That's what, very Ai Weiwei. It is very Ai Weiwei. Is that... Does Tyler Perry hate art? I was trying to find where that is that a real quote or are you just like the, was it being generalized then? Yes, I was being an asshole. Um, I was being it's so I was good, I was being pretentious. Yes, I think, I'm, I'm researching you and I go Billy Eichner art and he goes just yeah. like Tyler Perry. I hate art and then you're smashing everything. <laughs> up. I was like, uh oh. Well, it was. I mean, I actually like I said, I, I'm not a big fine art person right and i'm not a person who like runs to museums all the time but i think at the time tyler perry was very much in the zeitgeist you know and he kind of defines a a type of artist in a way whose work is extremely commercial and accessible while often being kind of like frowned upon by you know people who consider themselves like higher creative authorities and critics and film critics and things like that right um and so I think I was kind of satirizing all of that Um, because what we did on Billy on the street is sort of take whatever everyone's cultural obsessions were at that time and, and comment on them. And I think that's what that was. I totally forgot about that. It's it is it's it's pretty funny though i have the, the, the end per, the end stranger on the street uh is a great button the what he says to you at the end so i'll let people oh, discover that yeah i don't even remember i'm gonna have to go back and, i think he just swore at it. you i think it's what but most people do <laughs> <laughs> eventually yeah, exactly. at the end, yeah. Yeah, on every episode they do yeah so we have we have three questions that we ask every guest at the end the first one is if you could do an art heist if you could have any work of art for yourself as you're as you're now a newfound collector what artwork would you have in the world and why? Oh, God. I guess probably a Kandinsky. Nice. Or maybe one of those Calder mobiles. Really create a full oh. circle moment. Maybe we could get you the the Kandinsky prop Kandinsky, the double-sided, which only exists <laughs> oh, yeah, in the movie. Right. And you can turn it around and go chaos control, chaos control. Yes, exactly. Whatever mood you're Just- in. Every I time. like doing a lot of Stalker Channing cosplay at home. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Who doesn't? Yes. During Who breakfast doesn't? and dinner and everything. Um, guys so love can... that. Guys love that. Oh, when I find that so really guys that. find that hot. That is hot. It's so hot. Yeah, <laughs> that YouTube exactly. clip is like really regularly watched. Um, yes, I really exactly. think you need um, a tiny Calder mobile because that he mm. there's some that are like really tiny and you can like sit in your hand. I love those ones. Oh, that's cute. Like they insects. sometimes come up at auction. And I went to, actually, I think you came with me, Russ. We went yeah, to the house of the, um, foundation. the grandson of Calder together in New York. And we've actually met both of the grandsons, I think. He had one on Holton the table Rauer, next to a... Holton and Sandy Rower. That's right. And he had one next yeah. to a meteorite, a genuine meteorite, huge yes, one. Right. And he was positioned next to that. It's quite Yeah, old. to like a small, he had loads of small ones. Yeah, anyway, he did. Love it. Uh, the other question we ask every guest is, what is your favorite color? I like black. Do oh, right. Okay. I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> you know we were a lot of black it's kind of true um no that's a cliche i do like black i also like i just bought an apartment in la which i'm decorating and it's it's a very like black you're painting uh, it all black are you all? <laughs> yes it's a black box theater <laughs> actually um uh, i live in a black box theater no it, there, but there is there are a lot of like sh- it's a lot of like champagne i like that kind of nice. like a and it's kind of like an earthy, warm, but earthy but elevated. 
I yeah. love that. Talk about we, pretentious. We also love I mean, champagne. We love Christ. champagne. <laughs> That's not Who pretentious. Doesn't? That is that yeah. warm kind of autumnal shades. That yeah, I like it, a yeah. warm tone. Yeah, me too. Chaos Talking about your control. house, do you do you actually mm-hmm. um, live with anything in your house like art? Did you have any like posters or postcards or do, Madonna do, do you or surround yourself with images? John Bon Jovi? Yeah, still you know, yeah. it's it's interesting you bring this up because uh, I've been decorating this place now, and I pretty much have all the furniture, and my walls are bare. Wow! And I have to figure out what to put on my walls, which is oh always always we been help tough you. for me. Yeah, I don't know. We will help you. That'd be an absolute pleasure. We're going to help you. Tell us your Seriously. budget. Tell us what you're into. and we can. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't even know. It's endless. Honestly, you've given Russ the challenge. Though. He loves this kind of thing. It's mostly, just, it's mostly just my headshot blown up and framed <laughs> everywhere. In an Andy Warhol style. Just not just, even. Just, not even. Oh, not just even. the black and just. white... Um, <laughs> Google images yeah. just printed off. Oh Laminated. <laughs> what's, what's, exactly. um, what's the best advice you've ever received? When it comes to your work. Sorry, I'm thinking. I can hear your brain. I, I don't know if anyone told me this or it's something I just kind of figured out, although I have read other people who say a version of this, and it's nothing too radical or revolutionary, but it is always something to keep in mind, especially about show business. Nobody knows a goddamn thing. Like no one knows what's going to be successful. Everyone knows after the fact and then acts like they're an expert in hindsight, but no one knows anything, you know, so about what's going to hit or what's not going to hit or what the best road is for you to go down creatively as a writer, as an actor, you really have to do what makes you happy and and just listen to your gut. That doesn't mean you don't listen to people's advice if you trust them, obviously. But anyone who tries to tell you that they know exactly how something is going to go or tells you anything definitive, it's bullshit. Don't listen to them. I love that advice. So do I. That's fantastic. You are. It's scary advice. It's scary advice. Because that means there's no rules to anything. And like everyone wants to find a formula or a pattern, but there literally is not one, right? And mm-hmm. so, I don't know, it's liberating and it's terrifying at the same time. Well, you, but I have found you've that made your own pattern. You've made, you know, bros is, is the new pattern, the new blueprint. You've, you've put something out there which wasn't there before that now feels like it's been there forever and will change lives. Well, that's nice yeah, and I think it's going to keep growing and growing, that film. I think yes. it's like, it's a kind of thing that like once it's streaming... I think it's going to reach so many more different people yeah, as well. Every like, new generation, of, every queer kid is going to people are like really it. talking about it a lot in the UK as well. Like it's it's become a kind of word of mouth thing. I know a lot of people who have loved it and, yeah, loved and it. they oh, tell their friends and it is, it's like a domino effect. And I don't think thank it's, you. I think it's one of those things that's just going to, it'll have its own life and it's going to change a lot of people's lives. Thank um, you. You know, it made sweet. me think that, that, um, that comment you made at the end, then uh, it made me think about self-esteem. The singer who was a guest on our show recently, and she was saying that the more I had dinner with her recently for the Spogue dinner in London, it was really fancy. But she said, like the the more successful you get, you sort of get into these offices of like very important people, and then they're just asking you what to do. And she's like, she's like, don't you know what the answer is? And like, no one has the fucking answer. And she's yeah. like, the bigger she's getting, she realizes that everyone wants her just to come up with what. You know, it's just funny that that actually a lot of people are just blagging it. 
As well there's also the there's also something that we deal with in our business a lot and in our world a lot where this whole thing that you should stay in your lane. Yes. Right. And that's something that especially if you're a gay man, especially if you're a gay actor, maybe if you're just a gay person in life in general, culture, society, certainly the entertainment industry has, at least up until very recently, seen you in a very particular way. Totally. Yeah. Right. And if anything, they're telling you, you're lucky, you're lucky that we see you at all. So yeah. just stay and keep doing that one thing because that's mm. all anyone's going to want from you. That's all we believe you can do, mm. et cetera, et cetera. And you have to work really hard to actively fight against that. And you have to force people like that, which is most people, to change the wiring in their brain, right? About how they perceive you, how they perceive gay people, how they perceive anyone, really, right? Um, because we all have this sort of impulse to really stereotype people and just sort of, okay, you do that one thing. That's what he does. That's all he does. Great. And you have to work really hard. You know, don't just sit. Part of being an artist is like forcing yourself to evolve. And I think you have to work really hard to do that. Don't let them keep telling you, you can only do one thing, you know, mm -hmm. like, and if they do just be like, fuck you, I'm not doing it. I'm going to go make this other thing. That's important too, I think. Mm, lovely. Thank you, Billy. You're brilliant. Great way to close the episode. Thank you. Thank you. Well, for everyone listening, go to our talk art on Instagram and we will be posting images uh, of everything we discussed today. Go on YouTube and check out uh, Billy on the Street and watch that scene in uh, Six Degrees of Separation, comma, Kandinsky. Book tickets now for Yasmina Reza's uh, remounting of art, which will be starring myself <laughs> and Billy Eichner. Uh, Rob hasn't bought all the tickets Rob first. Hasn't bought and all the tickets also, first, um, you can see Billy's Instagram, which is at Billy Eichner. And Billy, you've just got the green light for a new film, no? Aren't you starting to write another film? We're starting to write it. We don't have the green light for it yet. Um, but You uh, have got the green light. If you say you've got the green light. <laughs> that's true. I should just bullshit and say <laughs> that we have it. We are, uh, we yeah. are giving uh, you the green light. Thank you. Yeah, I'm uh, working on a new movie for Amazon called Ex-Husbands. It's about a that's right, yeah. big, big gay divorce. If you know the movie The War of the Roses from the <gasps> 80s, it's like oh. a gay version of that. Um, it's not a remake of The War of the Roses, but that's sort of the vibe. Yeah. The genre. Yeah, yeah the, a War of the Roses was very much a statement on 80s materialism, and that's not what we're doing uh, at all, because <laughs> ours takes place now. But the idea that there's this big gay divorce comedy, dramedy, or something like that, I, I, I was interested in that. So I think, and I'm writing it with Paul Rudnick, who's a gay screenwriter who wrote so many movies that a, a lot of us grew up with. He wrote sister act and uh, adam's family values and in and yes. out he wrote the play and movie jeffrey which in the 90s was like a very big oh, thing love. Um, oh, wow. and uh, he's fantastic and so uh, i grew up loving his work so the fact that i get to work with him is really cool it's an iconic title as well i'm already excited to see it so you better get the uh, yeah it's called ex, ex husbands yeah <laughs> that's brilliant Amazing. fantastic yeah. well thanks well lot, we'll Billy. be back very soon thank, thank you and th thanks for uh encouraging me to go see some art of course <laughs> and Happy um hope 23 and, uh, is amazing it's going to be the year of fun i've decided we all have to have way more fun in 2023 Great. Thank you. Right. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.
You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Tovey. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com